You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Welcome. I am Pete Betke, uh, the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center and and a professor of uh, philosophy and economics at George Mason University. Uh, We're here today to talk about the book by Jason Brennan and Bas van der Vossen, uh, in uh, Defense of Openness, uh, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Uh, The way that the conversation will go is we'll start with uh, Bas and then with Jason. Bas is a professor at Chapman University in the philosophy department and a member of the Smith Institute uh, in political economy and philosophy. And Jason is uh, the Robert J. and Elizabeth Flagan Family Professor of Strategy, Economics, and Ethics and Public Policy at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. And they will have their 20 minutes or so uh, to present the basic arguments of the book. And then we will hear from our panel and we're very fortunate to have a great panel today. We have uh, Professor Anna Stiltz, uh, who is the Lawrence Rockefeller Professor of Politics and uh, also at the University Center for Human Values at Princeton. And we also have uh, with us Kit Wellman, who is the Dean of Academic Planning and Professor of Philosophy at Washington University in St. Louis. And then finally, we have James Witte, uh, professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology here at George Mason University and director of the Center for Social Science Research. Without any uh, interventions from me now, I'm going to turn it over to Boss and Jason, and then when they are done, we'll go to, uh, to Anna and then to Kit and then to James and then back to a conversation among the panel. All right. Um, the way Jason and I thought we'd start things off would be uh, just to, for me to quickly give an overview of what we were thinking the project was uh, is about or trying to achieve, and then for uh, Jason to um, discuss some of the arguments in a little more detail. So I'll I'll talk about five to ten minutes, and then he'll do the rest of the intro time. Um, so there, when we started thinking about this book, um, one thing we were struck by was. Like most books in global justice, they start with uh, with stories and statistics on worldwide poverty. Um, we wanted to start this book differently, and there was a reason for that. So we started with uh, a story with little stories and statistics about prosperity. So it's not to deny that much of the world today is poor, desperately poor, um, but it's it's been that way always. Most of the world, or all the world, has been this poor for almost all the time. Um, but the point rather is that today. Despite that, parts of the world are rich, stunningly rich. Even. And so given this, the first thing we thought we need to ask is, how is it possible that rich parts actually left their poverty behind? And then the second thing to ask is, is there's any way that we can spread that solution to the people who are today still mired in poverty? Now, when we read econo- economics, then economists think about why the world has rich and poor places. I'm going to simplify a lot here, but what they say is, you know, most places that got rich mostly get rich because they've 
managed to increase real productivity in trade. They didn't get rich by stealing from others. Often they did steal from others, but that wasn't why they got rich. They didn't get rich by locking into rich deposits of natural resources. Those are a mixed bag anyway. And they got rich by growing their economies. So when Jason and I decided that we were going to write this book, what we wanted to do is we wanted to write a theory of ju global justice that took this truth very seriously. When we think about global poverty, inequality, injustice, what we see is not primarily a problem of uneven distribution. It is a problem of uneven distribution, but not primarily. Primarily what we see is a problem of uneven productivity. And the way to solve that problem is by spreading the sources of such productivity. And means spreading the rights and the freedoms that make productivity possible. That includes the freedom to move, the freedom to trade, the freedom to work, produce, keep the profit. Now we think, we should think this is, is should be a pretty obvious approach. But when we're reading the now vast literature on global justice, almost nobody ends up talking about these things. That literature talks a lot about duties of aid, developmental aid, redistribution of wealth, or even the unequal or unfair initial distribution of natural resources, things like that. But the questions it asks are to whom we owe such duties of redistribution or how much do we owe? But the overall approach to the problem of global justice is largely taken for granted. And so the literature ignores mostly the questions of free migration. It either ignores or more likely outright attacks the freedom to trade. And it ignores or outright attacks people's rights and freedom to engage in productive, productive activity, where things are criticized, not defended. So the answer we get in the existing literature is roughly this. You solve it, solve global poverty by moving money from rich to poor. Or in other words, make poor people better off by making rich people worse off. That's not our answer. Our answer is something like this. Find a way for everyone in the world to become better off together. Spread the sources of pr prosperity, the things that made it possible for people to become better off, to leave poverty in the first place. Now this book about in philosophy, of course, so it's on a more theoretical philosophical level, that's the way that justice should be anyway, we think. Justice is about uh, finding a way for people who could be at odds with one another, who could be living at each other's expense, for those people to find ways to cooperate and all better themselves. Justice is not about zero sum, or heavens forbid, negative sum transfers from one party to another. It's about fostering positive sum interactions be between all. So we believe. Justice does not mean that you make yourself better off, that whenever you make yourself better off, that constitutes an attack on me. And it doesn't mean that for me to live a good life, you must live a worse one. If justice were that way, and justice would mean, mean war, not peace. Now, the overall goal of the book is to defend that view of justice in a global context and discuss why it beats the alternatives. Um, so about half of it is developing our view, addressing the issues of migration, trade, and the rights necessary for productive activity. And then the other half shows why that beats the alternatives. So final point about this, the way we approach this is a point more about method. Is that we're trying to show on grounds that we think are really quite uncontroversial that this approach to global justice is correct. So we try to avoid grand theory theorizing or appeal to esoteric philosophical assumptions. This is explicitly not a libertarian theory of justice, as it might seem from the conclusions. We try to ground these arguments in ideas that are quite easily or intuitively seen to be true, true from many different points of view. And then we try to show why those straightforward ideas apply to the global context as well. And that's the 
business of the various arguments in the various chapters. So that's where Jason will pick up now. Yeah, thanks. And uh, thanks to Pete for organizing this and to all of you for being here uh, to talk to us about this today. Um, you know, I've got roughly 15 minutes and that should be enough to completely cover all of the, uh, all the arguments in the book and find detail for listeners who haven't read it. But of course, I'm not really going to do that, so I can speak quickly. I think I just want to talk sort of briefly about the main types of moves that we make. So you can think of it like this. Our, our main goal is to try to show that there is a strong presumption in favor of openness. Openness meaning people should be allowed to live wherever they please, like move to any apartment that someone wants to rent to them, buy any house anywhere that someone wants to sell them, uh, live in a residence other people are willing to like allow them to live in. They should be allowed to take a job anywhere that they'd like to. That the ease at which I can move between Virginia and say Rhode Island or vice versa, that ease should apply to how easy it is for someone to move from Canada to the US or from Haiti to the US or from Nigeria to the UK or whatever, any other place. We think that should be the default and the way we try to motivate that as a default is primarily through starting with a set of philosophical arguments about that elicit intuitions and as well as some economic arguments. So the philosophical arguments often start by describing a situation in which you have a person who is, say, desperately poor and they're able to make a trade with somebody and that will greatly improve their welfare. And that person wants to trade with them. They would they like to trade with them. They want to have a positive sum interaction. Now, this could be hiring a person who happens to be a foreigner to work for them. It could be trading a good. It could be something else. And in this case, imagine that you come in and you interfere with that transaction. You prevent it from taking place intuitively, it looks like you are doing something really bad. And even though you might not be responsible for that person's poverty in the first place, you're responsible for the resulting conditions afterwards because they would have been made better off but for you. And we play around with cases like this to start asking, does it make a difference if it's not just me interfering with you, but a bunch of us? And we voted to do so first. And intuitively, it doesn't seem to make much difference. So we think there's a strong presumption in favor of allowing people who want to interact with each other in a positive some manner to be allowed to do so. We admit that's a presumption, but it seems like a strong one. The second thing we argue is that if you actually review the economics literature, it's striking how univocal it is about these sorts of things. Uh, so when economists talk about what would be the value of opening up uh, trade, it's clear that like a world of open trade would vastly improve the welfare of almost everyone. There are some hard cases, but in general, that's the outcome. But even more impressive is free immigration. Uh, the literature on immigration is pretty univocal in that immigration restrictions between countries are the single most destructive and inefficient thing that governments are doing. So a series of famous papers that have kind of reviewed that literature say that basically world product, the total amount of it stuff being produced in the world every year, the total value of all goods and services is being cut in half because of currently existing immigration restrictions. That might be overly optimistic um, because it makes some certain assumptions about when people will move that might be unrealistic. But even on a more realistic assumption, you still get something like, you know, 50 to $60 trillion worth of stuff and goods and services that just aren't being produced every single year because of immigration restrictions. And further, the gains from these restrictions are pretty widespread. A huge amount of them go to the global poor. So if you want to read one paper on this, you can look up Glenn Whale. Uh, there's a recent paper about how immigration affects um, redistribution. And he says, it's clear that immigration, even currently existing immigration, dwarfs the sort of egalitarian power of redistribution within a country and between countries. It's not even a competition. Immigration is just so much better in terms of its ability to promote the welfare of the poor. 
Now, many people accept that, but they think, well, it promotes the welfare of the poor at the expense of the rich, uh, at the expense of my neighbors. And they try to argue that we have some sort of special obligation to our neighbors to protect them from the global poor. That might mean forbidding them from moving here or so on. But actually, again, the economics literature doesn't say that. It doesn't support that view. In general, what it supports is the view that for most people, trade, for most people, immigration is going to be a massive boon, whether if you are the rich or the poor, it will help everybody. And really only certain small numbers of people will be losers in the short term. In the long run, everyone's a winner. In the short term, some people will be losers. But the gains to the winners are so high that it's pretty easy to compensate the losers, right? So if I can wave a magic wand that makes everybody a trillion times richer, except for Kit, you know, he loses, say, $10,000, we can probably give him a side payment of like a million dollars and he would be happy. So in a way, it's a positive sum interaction. It's, it, that's like the default. That's what the literature says. So a lot of what the early part of the book is doing is looking at if this is the presumption, what could possibly defeat that presumption? And here we have to look at a slew of arguments. Some arguments say even the opening thought experiments aren't really proper because uh, in reality, these kind of micro thought experiments about interaction and what we owe to each other and like as private individuals only hold if we're presupposing that there's already a background democratic state and that somehow trumps everything. Or people who argue, well, it's, you know, I, I have special obligations to my neighbors and not to foreigners. And that's what permits me to uh, promote their welfare at the expense of foreigners, even though foreigners are much worse off than my, than my neighbors. You know, so a perplexing thing about uh, often what passes for the left in modern democratic nation states is that the arguments they're making are about protecting the income of people who are in the top 10% of world income uh, at the expense of people who are genuinely poor. You know, so it only takes about $40,000 a year in current U.S. dollars to be in the top 1%. And so people will make these arguments, which I think are economically incorrect, but they'll make the argument that, well, you can't allow immigrants to come here because they'll hurt my neighbor. They'll go from being extremely rich by world standards to only being, well, still extremely rich, but just not quite as rich. It's a bizarre thing. So we have to look at all these various philosophical and economic arguments uh, that are objections to open borders, objections to free trade. In general, we just try to defeat them on their own terms, try to find an internal inconsistency, try to find perverse implications of those arguments, uh, or just try to show in some cases that the, the literature, the empirical literature does not support them. So we take it basically by the time we get to around like ch chapter uh, seven, we've basically made a philosophical case on behalf of open borders and on behalf of free trade. So openness is good. It's good from a libertarian perspective. It's good from a liberal perspective. It's exceptionally good from an egalitarian perspective. Uh, it's good from a welfare perspective, sufficientarianism. It doesn't matter kind of what your underlying moral view is. It looks like it's a really wonderful thing. Uh, but then we go further uh, and we argue that it's actually a human right to be able to engage in positive sum interactions with other people, to have the right to move where you want, to have the right to trade. When we say it's a human right, we don't want to say, therefore, it should be completely laissez-faire and unregulated. That's an interesting question. Or therefore, it can't be taxed. We're not saying that either. But we are saying that you do have these default rights. And our main structure of try to argue for that is to simply take the arguments that are in the existing literature on global justice for what's supposed to establish something as a human right and show that those arguments apply even more strongly on behalf of the right to engage in production and the right to engage in uh, productive interactions with others than they do in favor of the sort of consumption rights that people have been applying them to. So that's the most kind of grand theoretical stuff that we do. We just say the grand theories of human rights, it 
plus the facts imply very strongly that these are human rights. So that's kind of the positive aspect of the book. Um, and then the negative aspect is to kind of compare this to existing theories of justice, which as Boss said, overwhelmingly look at people as being mouths to feed and not as people who are here to make productive contributions or as people who can serve one another by working together and living together. And there's kind of a, it's a depressing way to look at human beings in the first place, but it's also surprisingly uh, self-effacing because one kind of simple way to think about this is we can't really solve the problem of world poverty without economic growth. That's just not on the table. So a good way to illustrate that is to think uh, total GDP per capita right now, total production per person around the world is about $16,000 in current U.S. dollars, right? And that is adjusted for the cost of living. So when I say $16,000, I mean, picture what $16,000 will buy you in like the typical place in the United States. So that sounds like a lot because for most of the world, they're making less than that. So if they could all get, if I could just wave a magic wand and make it so everyone, all of current production were produced, turned into something that was consumable and everyone got an equal share. It sounds like, well, for people in the first world, for people in Germany, for people in uh, you know, South Korea or Canada or the United States or the Netherlands, this would be horrible. You'd, you'd lose income. But for much of the world, that would be great. You'd be better off. But even this thought experiment is illusory because... Um, you know, it's not actually possible to turn all current production into some liquid consumable form, right? Because some of this is going into investing in infrastructure. Some of this is going into like, you know, running government. Some of it's going into like, you know, running factories and doing the stuff, you know, reinvesting in the things that make production possible in the first place. So in a sense, it's giving us a high limit, a high estimate. You know, we, at most, if we had magic, we could make everyone make $16,000 a year. Reality is probably more like perfect egalitarianism if we could somehow pull it off. And if there weren't any kind of a disincentive effect or any other kind of misallocation problem, maybe people could get like $7,000 a year right, on average. And for a lot of people, that would make them better off, but it's still not making them rich. It's still not even satisfying what someone like Rawls would say is the amount that a person ought to have to have like a full flourishing human life or what Nussbaum and Sen would say, the amount that you need to have to fully realize your human capabilities. So we need growth. Uh, and fortunately, open borders is a much better uh, mechanism to, for that growth than say simple redistribution in the first place. But nevertheless, people want to argue that it's primarily a problem of redistribution. And we're not here to say that no redistribution should take place, but we're saying the focus on this is mistaken. Plus, many of the arguments for redistribution are mistaken as well. So one of the chapters looks at the issue of colonialism and imperialism in the past. We say that the economics literature does not support, and this is not controversial among economists, though it's for surprisingly controversial outside of economics, that it does not support the view that the reason the first world is rich and the rest is poor is because of past imperialism. Past imperialism has had very negative effects on some countries. It has had lasting negative effects on some countries, but it is not the reason why countries today are rich. In fact, even Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations, part of what the economic argument of that book was, was to say that England and Spain were losing money on their empire. And we think this greatly complicates what it would mean to have to redistribute back or have to pay reparations because you can't go up to the average person in Spain and say, well, the reason you're so rich is because in the past, uh, your queen conquered a bunch of people and took their stuff. Rather, the truth is closer like, in the past, your queen taxed your ancestors. As a result, you're probably a little bit less rich than you otherwise would be. So she hurt them a little bit in order to hurt other people even more. 
So it's hard to make a case for reparations on that kind of ground, and it just seems like the facts are wrong. Um, others will try to argue that there's just simply an ar- a duty of charity to give to others. And even though we do believe in a duty of, of charity, we do think that we should give to charity. We, we both give money to various kinds of charities and so on. We don't think that this implies uh, a simple argument to just give all excess wealth from the first world to the rest of the world, in part because it wouldn't work, but in part because we think the philosophical arguments that are meant to show that don't quite succeed. And we look at a number of other kinds of arguments people give for redistribution. But without getting into all the details of that, you can fundamentally think of them as they're all sort of relying on thought experiments that elicit intuitions towards redistribution, but which might not actually be analogous to the world. So if I say something like, imagine great grandma has baked a giant pie and when she gives it to her great grandchildren, she gives 20 of the kids giant slices and the other, uh, I guess 180 kids, they say they're 200, the other 180 kids uh, like tiny slices, that elicits the intuition that it was a misallocation problem. But the problem of economic inequality in the world is not fundamentally a misallocation problem, it's fundamentally a problem of Uh, institutions. The countries that are rich are rich because they have institutions which foster productivity. The countries that are poor are poor because they have institutions that don't. We're not blaming the citizens there, though we are blaming their leaders for that, but we're not blaming the citizens. We're not saying that if you're from Haiti, it's your fault that you're poor, but we are saying that the reason Haiti is poor and the reason that Canada is rich is fundamentally uh, because of having better institutions that foster productivity versus institutions that foster extraction and allow the elites to prey upon everybody else. It's very difficult to fix those institutions. I, I teach a po- uh, politics, philosophy, and economics courses every semester, and I show students the uh, literature and economics about the institutional theory, and I show them why this is basically the consensus view. And then students inevitably ask, well, what do we do about that? How do we get the countries with less productive and dangerous and extractive institutions to switch over to having productive institutions? And I say, no one really has a theory of global change yet. No one really has a theory of institutional change that explains that. If you can figure that out, there's a Nobel Prize waiting for you. So we don't really know how to export productive institutions. And in fact, the history of our attempts to do so have largely been failures. But the thing that we fundamentally can do is open up our own societies to allow people who want to come live under our better functioning institutions to live together, to work with us, to befriend us, to love us, and to prosper together. So fundamentally, we think that's what global justice is about. And the other things are, well, you know, smart, clever in some cases, not in other cases, but fundamentally incorrect. So I'll stop there and I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of your comments and objections. Okay, so Anna. Great, Uh, thanks. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's really nice to see uh, the smiling faces of my friends, Boss and Kit, which I haven't seen you all for a while and I'm happy to see you well and and safe and and hale and hearty. Uh, And also to meet uh, Jason and and Jim and and Pete and some new faces faces too. so uh, Boss and, 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 and uh, Jason offer a kind of a two-pronged case in the book uh, in favor of free immigration and trade. So first of all, they claim that there's a, a right against interference with economic exchange, regardless of whether that exchange is a kind of domestic exchange or an international exchange. That's their deontological case um, for economic openness. Uh, And second, they also argue that uh, free movement in goods and labor would have beneficial consequences and it wouldn't cause, it would cause few, if any, really harms. Uh, And that's their more consequence-based case for openness. 
So there, there's a lot to like about the book. It's quite sharply argued. It's refreshingly written. I found it very approachable and accessible in a way that I like a lot about it as, a, as a style of uh, philosophical writing. Um, but I disagreed with both of those central, central arguments. Um, so I agree with them that there's a case to be made for economic openness. But I, I see that case as much more qualified than the case that they offer. So let me start with the more um, deontological argument. Uh, so Boss and Jason hold that everybody everywhere has a right to non-interference in economic exchange, and that encompasses this right to, to migrate, the right to trade freely, and the right to, to sort of possess and profit from um, uh, productive property. So they acknowledge in various places that that's not an absolute right, but uh, the feeling one gets from the book is that it, they conceive the right is quite strong. It's something that really is, should be limited only in cases of kind of catastrophic harm. Uh, and indeed, as, as Jason sort of mentioned, in one of the chapters of the book, they argued that those economic liberties, or at least some of them, should be considered as human rights. But I was surprised to find sort of a fairly little grounding argument, in my view, for the strong right to, to, to economic uh, freedom in the book. And what argument there is, as Jason already said, kind of builds on um, our intuitions about cases, and in particular, this one case called Starvin' Marvin, which appears in, in sort of two places in the book. So in the first version of the case, Marvin is headed to the market. He wants to trade some goods for some food. Um, and somebody prevents him from sort of getting to the market. And as a result, he's, he starves and he dies. In the second version of the case, Marvin lives in Mississippi. And he would like to, to send some goods to Chicago to trade with somebody there. Uh, but someone prevents him from sending that. So we can't feed his family. So. Boss and Jason suggest that uh, interference with Marvin's freedom to exchange seems wrong here, uh, so that they, they conclude from that that there must be a, a kind of a prima facie right against interference with economic exchange. So I didn't find that the Starvin Marvin case provided really any evidence in favor of a strong right to, to free exchange. So for one thing, the case is ambiguous. It's not clear that what we should focus on in the case uh, is that Marvin is prevented from making a trade with a willing partner uh, rather than the fact that Marvin is placed into a scenario in which he has to starve and die. Uh, so people from a lot of different ethical backgrounds or, you know, views on social justice from socialists to classical liberal, maybe even some libertarians, will, will think that it's wrong to leave people with no option but to starve. But note that there's a lot of ways that we might go about preventing starvation. We might give people a right to economic exchange. That might be one, one good way of addressing the problem, but we could also give people a universal basic income. We could give people in-kind goods. We could give people land on which they might grow food for their subsistence. So it's just not clear to me that our intuitions about starvation kind of support strong rights of free exchange. And just interrogating the thought myself, you know, thinking about strong rights of free exchange, I don't share the intuition that it's seriously and deeply wrong to interfere with freedom of, ex of economic exchange when there is some plausible justification for doing that based on the harms that unregulated exchange might cause. So suppose that Marvin uh, is about to make a contract with an employer uh, to work um, uh, in an unsafe workplace or to work for less than the minimum wage or to work 20 hours a day uh, and suppose the state interferes with his and his employer's ability to make that exchange by enforcing safety standards or enforcing a minimum wage law or enforcing a maximum hour law. Is the state doing something deeply and seriously wrong here? 
In my view, no. If Marvin and his employer were free to make that kind of those kinds of contracts, then that would likely lead to the both to the exploitation of Marvin, but also to an adverse impact on a lot of other workers because it's going to weaken safety standards, it's going to weaken labor protections, and so on. So I think there's often going to be a plausible harm-based case for limiting or regulating economic freedom in a number of different scenarios. And the contrary view, um, sort of disclaimer, the, the initial disclaimer about libertarianism aside, the contrary view <laughs> strikes me as resting on a libertarian uh, conception, according to which uh, any sort of state restriction on economic freedom is presumptively wrong. And that kind of a broad view of, of economic freedom is very controversial, and it would render a lot of ordinary state action illegitimate, I think. So I do agree with Boston Jason on one thing. I agree that there is a, a presumption in favor of liberty. Uh, and I would take that to mean that if there's no rational basis for restricting economic freedom, then people should be allowed to transact with one another. But I think that's a weak presumption. Um, so suppose there is some plausible prima facie reason for restriction out of concerns that for harms that, that economic exchange might cause. Well, in that scenario, I think Marvin's interest in economic freedom has to be balanced against the interests of other people and not suffering those harms without any kind of strong presumption uh, that economic freedom is a sort of basic fundamental right that just can't be interfered with, you know, except for sort of catastrophic kind of situations. Now, it's true that there are some fundamental liberties where the protection against restriction is higher especially sort of personal liberties that protect our control of intimate or identity-defining kinds of features of our lives, or the liberties that protect us against the arbitrary use of state power, things like the right to vote or the right to a fair trial, but I don't think the right to economic freedom is among those. So, so far my take is, on the book is as follows. I think uh, Boss and Jason are right that there is a weak presumption of economic openness. So if free migration and trade does not threaten any significant harm, then it should be allowed. But if migration or trade does threaten harm, then I think the state has a right to regulate it. Uh, so open migration or trade can, could permissibly be conditioned on policies that prevent those harms from occurring or mitigate the harms, or if that is not possible, open migration and trade could be restricted. So because that's my kind of view, I found there, the Boss and Jason's second kind of more consequence-based case uh, in favor of free immigration and trade to be, to be the more interesting one. So if we want to assess whether all things considered that sort of weak presumption in favor of openness should prevail, then we really need to know more about the consequences that openness might have. Would it cause harms or would it not? So here, uh, Boss and Jason argue that economic openness is beneficial. But in making that case, for the most part, at least in the book, although I'm not sure this was true of Jason's opening comments, I'll say something about that in a second, but for the most part in the book, uh, they offer a definition of beneficial that uh, requires interpersonal aggregation. Um, so that is, they, they allow that free migration and free trade does cause harms to some particular constituencies. Um, but they think that on balance, we should see those harms as outweighed by the much greater benefits to other people that the policies would, would, would give. So I, I said that I'm not sure because of Jason's opening comments, because his view was that if Kit loses out, he, we could pay him, we could give him a side payment, compensate him, and then the policy would be justified. But in the book, uh, Boss and Jason pretty clearly say that openness policies are justified independently of whether those compensation policies are enacted. 
uh, and that those are just sort of separate questions, or at least that was the reading that I, of the book that I had. If I'm mistaken, I'd be interested in hearing more about that in the conversation. Um, so there is, I, I'll note just in passing, and, and Boss and Jason are very good on this, that there's debate about how large the harms associated with economic openness are, even if they exist at all. Um, my reading of the literature is that there are more studies that do show concentrated harms associated with trade, especially deindustrialization and job loss that's associated with manufacturing competition from China. And here I'm thinking of David Autor and his co-author's co work from um, uh, recently uh, uh, on that. Um, there are fewer studies that show harms, uh, concentrated harms associated with low-skilled migration, although some studies do show some negative impacts. Uh, and I think we, got, we have to note that rich countries right now are pretty close um, to low-skilled migration, whereas they're much more open to low-skilled trade. But setting those uh, complex, I'm going to set those complexities aside for now, um, because I think that uh, Jason and Boss's general strategy is to concede that there will be some harms, but to argue that on net, the economic benefits associated with free trade and migration are greater than the harms that those policies might cause. So like other people who have kind of rights-based or separateness of persons kind of sympathies, I don't find the interpersonal aggregation case very plausible. So I don't think that small benefits that are diffusely spread over a large group of people should outweigh very concentrated harms to a small number of people. Uh, so just as one example of this, suppose we can, um, you know, adopt some kind of policy that would prevent a lot of people from ever suffering headaches ever again. But that policy would mean that we have to consign a few people to die. I don't think there's any number of people that we could save from headaches that would justify um, consigning the few people to die. So what kinds of lessons might that have when we come to evaluate uh, Boston Jason's more consequence-based argument? Well, I think rather than arguing that economic openness is justified by its aggregate benefits, uh, what we should argue instead is that its aggregate benefits do provide some reason for favoring it, but the case for openness is going to be conclusive only if it's paired with policies that mitigate the complaints that people who are harmed by the policy might have about it. And here I think Buss and Jason seem unwilling, at least in the book, to take those complaints very seriously. Um, so they do allow, for example, that free migration and trade might cause low-skilled domestic workers in rich countries to lose their jobs, and they do allow that that could have pretty serious consequences on them, at least in the short term. Uh, but they don't want to kind of condition economic openness, at least as I read their account, on the prevention or the co or compensation for those harms. And they also don't really want to interrogate too deeply the background conditions that might drive low-skilled workers from poor countries to accept jobs at very low, often even perhaps exploitative wages. And finally, they don't want to redistribute the gains of the capital owning and the professional classes of rich countries who have disproportionately benefited from the last 40 years of globalization and who will likely disproportionately benefit from the policies they advocate. So I thought that Boss and Jason's consequence-based case for openness relied on a, a kind of an illicit assumption that individuals' distributive entitlements should be set by a perfectly competitive global bargaining process without interrogating too deeply the justice of the initial endowments that structure that bargaining process, but just taking those differentials and background endowments is totally as given. So because they see that as the kind of relevant baseline, they, they think that individuals aren't really harmed in any relevant sense when their wages are determined um, uh, on a global labor market. 
And I think that view can be questioned in two different ways. So first of all, the baseline of initial endowments that go into a, the competitive bargaining process can and I think should be questioned. So why is the foreign sweatshop worker or the low-skilled migrant willing to work uh, for so little, for such a pittance? The answer, I think, is to a significant degree because he is unjustly oppressed, including by a long history of colonial exploitation, often by the very countries uh, that are trading uh, with the worker today or accepting that person as a migrant today. And Boss and Jason allowed that, the extra, uh, that extractive institutions often have colonial origins in their, uh, their um, chapter that draws on Robinson and Asimoglu's paper on that. Uh, and by the further injustices that are inflicted on those workers by the authoritarian and extractive states that, they, that many of them live in right now. But why should wages be set through a competitive bargaining process that's structured by deep oppression? Why not instead link trade openness to policies that are designed to improve the background conditions against which workers, low-skilled work, foreign workers, are bargaining? Things like requiring workplace safety standards, enforcing labor rights, requiring minimum pay on the part of firms that outsource production, and associating pro-development initiatives with multinational trade deals, things like technology transfer and preferential treatment for developing countries. Boss and Jason argue a whole lot against sending money, but there are a lot of other ways to engage in uh, redistribution or pre-distribution, correcting for these imbalances in bargaining power that don't involve sending money. Second, why think that people's distributive entitlements should be set by a competitive bargaining process at all? Why not think that people should have claims based on need and fairness that at least partially should determine what their distributive entitlements are? So Boss and Jason suggest that domestic workers in rich countries have no morally serious complaint about economic openness policies because they're, right now they're benefiting from an unjustified economic rent. Closed borders and protectionist policies keep low-skilled workers in rich countries, their wages are higher than they would be if they faced a competitive global market. And for Boss and Jason, therefore, it seems unfair, in their view, that workers in rich countries are any better off than the international working class. So in that sort of view, the higher pay and the better workplace rights that, that workers in rich countries have won through the democratic struggles of the 20th century are just privileges, unjustified privileges that they have no claims to, claims to protect. But I think we can question why the domestic working class of rich countries, and, and rather than their elites, should bear the brunt of policies that might benefit less advantaged foreigners. Why not think that both domestic and foreign workers have claims of need and fairness, and that the adoption of economic openness policies ought to be conditioned on a requirement that those claims of need and, need and fairness be met? So the gains of globalization we know are not evenly distributed. And in the rich countries, it's been the wealthiest people that have benefited the most. So shouldn't the adoption of further openness policies be conditioned on requiring those elites who've already benefited disproportionately and who will likely continue to benefit disproportionately from the policies advocated in the book to redistribute some of those gains in order to guarantee that other people can enjoy a basic standard of living and a fair structure of opportunity? So I will note that I'm not suggesting that first we ought to go ahead and liberalize everything, open the borders, you know, remove, lower the tariffs. And then later we should kind of try to regulate uh, exploitative work relations and compensate domestic losers from openness. 
What I'm saying is that we should condition economic liberalization on the prior enactment of those kinds of reforms. Unless openness for low-skilled foreign workers is accompanied by redistributive reforms and enhanced protections for labor, it's simply going to allow the globally best off to profit handsomely, I think, while, while escaping uh, redistributive and social obligations to everyone. Uh, and so in my view, there is this case for economic openness. I agree with them on that, but I think it's a highly qualified one. And I think it depends on the concurrent adoption of policies that can mitigate uh, the harmful and exploitative effects that are sometimes associated with openness. Okay, uh, so then we'll go to Kit. Um, thank you so much. I'm uh, thrilled to at least virtually see some friends. Um, it was a lot of fun uh, reading the book, uh, and uh, um, I'm afraid I agreed with a ton of it, so I won't be the best commentator. But I do um, I have two or three questions that I'd uh, like to push uh, to see where it goes. Um, I should say that one of my favorite parts of the book was the idea that uh, productive rights are human rights or more specifically, that there's a moral case for recognizing productive rights as legal rights. Uh, and it seems to me that if the authors are correct, the way I read it is the idea is that if the productive rights are conducive to people being able to live minimally decent human lives, then the case for productive, uh, human, uh, productive rights being human rights could parallel, for instance, the right uh, to a human rights of democracy or something like this. Um, and so, uh, I think that's great. But what I'm not clear about is how different uh, their suggestion, how novel and different their suggestion is from the basic and relatively uncontroversial claim that there's a human right, for instance, to uh, private property. So um, what I want to know is um, how this cashes out in terms of individuals and states for human rights and for their uh, political legitimacy. So do I violate someone's human rights, for instance, when I uh, refuse to trade with her? Uh, or does Norway violate uh, anyone's rights when it declines to trade with them or anyone from their country or, or from their region? Uh, or what about if Norway taxes its citizens in order to build an, a national opera house? Is that a human rights violation? Um, or um, uh, perhaps more aptly, what about the fact that Norway subsidizes its domestic farmers? Is it violating the human rights of the citizens by taking their money in order to give it to the farmers? Is it uh, violating the human rights of foreigners by uh, subsidizing its, its farmers? Um, so there's a question of whether we think this is economically optimal and efficient. And I take it the case is extremely strong that it's not, right? But if we're going to say, no, 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 we're, you know, we're saying these productive rights are human rights, are we willing to go so far as to say that Norway is illegitimate? Or maybe even Norway is liable to being, to forcible intervention because it, uh, tax the citizens in order to uh, build an opera house, or it taxed its citizens in order to um, uh, subsidize its farmers, or because it restricts immigration. So um, 
these are th these are claims I think that would go well beyond um, the more general idea that there's a human right to private property, uh, but I think um, uh, they're more controversial. Uh, so that's the first question. Uh, I like I like the suggestion. I like the idea. I'd certainly like the strategy, but I'd I'd want to hear more details about how it gets cashed out. Um, Secondly, I was surprised that the, I think, excellent work of Ryan Pevnik on immigration uh, wasn't given uh, more attention in the book. So, again, one of the things I really liked about the book was the uh, consistent and repeated change of orientation, right? So from the very beginning, it's like, there are poor people. Of course there are poor people. There have always been poor people, right? What's stunning is there are some crazy rich folks. Right? That's what needs the explanation. Seemingly out of nowhere, we've got mad affluence. Right? And what's the, what's the explanation for that? Institutions. Right? Uh, so Ryan Pavnik agrees right, that institutions are, are huge, but he goes a very different direction from you. So he would take Norway, for instance, and say, yeah, the Norwegians say, we're, we're living large because of the institutions we've created. But these are our institutions. We created them, right? And, and we have something like ownership over these institutions insofar as we created. So they're ours to do what we want with. And if we want to share them with everyone in the world, that's our prerogative. If we want to guard them much more jealously and say, no, we're only going to, you know, share them with our, our descendants, right? Ourselves and our descendants, that's our call. They're our institutions. So we totally agree that you know, uh, the explanation for our uh, wealth is our institutions, but this gives the justification for, for restricting immigration. And then we get to decide uh, whether we're gonna allow people to immigrate and, and enjoy our institutions, right? So you can imagine um, three types of folks, right? The first, the first person is just say, they're ours, I don't wanna share them. No one's allowed in, right? Um, and that doesn't seem like a very nice person, but it's an interesting question about if, if Bevnik's right that there's, you know, that the Norwegians own these institutions or have something like an ownership of these institutions, it's not clear that um, uh, they're doing anything unjust. Secondly, you might have someone who's, you know, a, a Pevnik, a, a descendant of Pevnik and David Miller, right, says, other things being equal, would love to share these institutions as broadly as possible. But, you know, I think that uh, Jay and Boss are right, right? These are spectacularly rare, right? It's not like you see them all over the place. It's like we've gotten them right, and it's a really delicate ecosystem uh, to keep them functioning. Anything like what we have. I mean, these are, you know, when you look at the human history, these seem to be just about the best institutions ever right? And we're not sure how stable they are, right? And it seems plausible that if uh, we just allowed any, anyone who wanted to come here to come here, right, that they wouldn't operate nearly as well, right? So we uh, in Norway have uh, admitted uh, a Pakistani community, and we did so because we thought it would be mutually beneficial. This wasn't just, you know, a charity, right? We thought it'd be great. And then uh, we were surprised at, at uh, the problems with integration, integrating this community, right? And so we want uh, to bump the brakes on that, 
Not that we don't, you know, care about Pakistanis, right? But it turns out that uh, uh, we may not get to continue to enjoy our uh, institutions unless we tend to them. And tending to them in part uh, depends upon how many and what type of folks are here. Don't have all the answers, but we do know what we've got is a really rare thing, and so we don't want to muck it up. And then you got the third person, right, who is uh, much more sort of globally minded. And she, you know, says, this is great. I want to share it as widely as possible, but I, I hear these concerns, right? So rather than open, or at least open, uh, I have a blanket opening, right? Why don't we try and replicate them, okay? And then, uh, you know, someone like Jay might come back and say, you know, it's really hard, right? We, we don't know that much about creating these types of institutions elsewhere, right? But this, is, this cuts both ways, right? Because if, if we really don't know that much about the institutions and, and, and how to replicate them and what creates them, then that lends more credence to the people who are going to say, if we don't know that much about building them, then maybe we should be really careful about opening immigration, right? So um, you could have people say, look, yeah, I'm not just talking about um, – giving handouts or things like that, but I really care about the global poor. Take Haiti, Jay's example, right? I think it's, it's, it's terrible. Let's do what we can, rather than opening our doors to all Haitians, right? Let's do what we can uh, to try and help Haiti replicate our institutions, because this seems like the best long-term recipe, the best long-term recipe for humanity, if we really digest the lesson about institutions is seeing that there are much better institutions all over the globe, right? So that people don't have to try and go from Haiti to Norway in order to have a minimally decent life. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure I would uh, condemn the first person. It certainly doesn't seem that great. Second, I'm mixed about, but the third seems eminently plausible to me. Uh, so that, um, that is on the immigration front uh, where I'd push you. Uh, and then the third is, is a question, and it's a question for all of us. Uh, and it's about, but I'll put it to the authors because it's their day, right? How comfortable are you with second-class citizenship? Okay, so I think it's on like pages 35 and 36 where you're talking about the welfare state. And you say, look, you don't want to let, you know, some people say don't, don't let them in because we can't, if, if, we, if we let everyone from Haiti into, Nor Haiti into Norway, right, then we're not going to be able to continue to give the same welfare benefits to everybody. And your response is, all right, well, if that's the case, then we can just um, allow them in without giving them a welfare benefits, right? Rather than putting a wall around Norway, put a wall around Norway's uh, welfare uh, state system. And you say, look, we're not fans of this. We're, you know, let's be very clear, this is not our preferred option, but it seems less cruel, right? Because these people are better off. You're giving Haitians a choice, right? Well, they get to be better off. The Norwegians get to be better off. It's Pareto optimal. So don't, you know, don't, don't mistake us as saying this is our first choice, but it's better, okay? Um, and if you're really willing to go this way, if you're really fine with this, I think this is a huge move, right? Because I take it that almost everybody, there are people like Chandra Kukathis, right, who make this move. But almost everybody, since Walzer's discussion of membership 
in uh, spheres of justice uh, have agreed with him that you you know maybe you can exclude people, right? But if you include people, and they're not just as temporary guest workers, but if you if you include people. Uh, for uh, an indeterminate amount of time, they have to be included as full citizens, right? And uh, I get, I get the way you're pushing because that's that looks like it's saying it's turning your back on something which is a Pareto improvement. But I also get Walzer's claim, and I wonder if this has to do with the doing allowing distinction, right? That there's a difference between people suffering and you're having a hand in their second class citizenship. So um, when I raise this, I raise this as a question for all of us because I, I feel, I mean, I lean on Walzer. It's a, it's a critical component of my view that states, legitimate states can sometimes have a claim to exclude others. I rely on this Walzerian idea, which most of us take for granted. Um, and uh, so I think one of the interesting thing, which is just interesting things, which is just thrown out and not really pursued is whether um, we should stick with that or whether we could turn our back on, on Walser's claim. And they're gonna be, they're gonna be, there's gonna be discomfort either way. So I'll stop there. Thank you. All right, so Jim. Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, you know, I think as my Mason colleagues know, I am a bit of an outlier among the sociology, the sociologists here and, you know, uh, around uh, the, the nation at least, in that I really like working with economists. Uh, and I really think that the two disciplines um, benefit from collaboration. Uh, and I'm really pleased here at Mason that I've got someone like Pete or Virgil Storr, you know, who enjoy these conversations and how we can learn from one another. Uh, so when I read this book, I decided I would uh, focus my comments on ways that people who are neither a economist nor a philosopher can really benefit from the book. Um, and when Pete introduced me, he forgot one, one part of my title. I'm also director of the Institute for Immigration Research here at Mason. Uh, so I'm going to focus on immigration and how... Um, Boston Jason's book uh, in defense of openness has really given me some good ideas about uh, some of the work we're doing on immigration. And then uh, I have a question at the end because it didn't quite solve my problem. Right? And so, you know, in the field, you know, the institute that I run, um, our primary mission was to look at the uh, positive economic benefits of immigration. Uh, and try to see where we can find them, particularly focused on the United States. And, you know, we found a lot. Um, and we do a lot of kind of public outreach. Um, and we came to the conclusion, and this is true of a lot of um, sort of research that is pursuing a open, a more open uh, immigration agenda, um, that these arguments on the economic benefits uh, we're not capturing the day. You know, that we were showing for low skill and high skill uh, work that there were some real benefits of having immigration, perhaps of expanding immigration, but nobody was, we weren't changing, changing hearts and minds. And so this has been going on for probably two years now where people are beginning to say, well, you know, how do we change the narrative about immigration? And what should we be thinking about instead? 
Um, and there's a lot of work, you know, interesting ideas uh, that are focused on culture. The sort of integration, I think, you know, that in part Kit was talking about of, you know, how do you integrate Pakistanis into uh, Norway? Um, and why would the Norwegians, even if there were no threat, why would they still resist this? Uh, and so as we began working on this um, and trying to come up with a, a sort of new solution or ways, you know, we tossed around an idea of solidarity solutions uh, and we're kind of thinking about that. And then um, COVID-19 came along uh, and um, people at, the, at Utah State at the Center for Growth and Opportunity asked me if I would write with my colleague, Michelle Waslin, if we would write a essay on sort of guiding principles uh, for immigration policy in the post-pandemic world. Uh, and so at that point, just as we were starting on this, this essay, I began to read the book. And I said, why do I need to reinvent the wheel with solidarity solutions when we've got positive sum solutions? And sort of work that into the mix. Um, and, you know, really the thing that makes us so essential right now is you know, when people were advancing the they're stealing our jobs argument when unemployment was under 4%, now when we have double digit unemployment, it's even more critical to think about that. And then at the same time, we've got um, the public health crisis. We've got some people talking about the Chinese flu. Um, and so at the same time that arguments against immigrants, particularly low skill immigrants, um, are being sharpened, although also for a lot of the Asian uh, high-skill immigrants, they're feeling the same sort of discrimination, uh, that we see that COVID-19 is hitting immigrants, particularly those who are in essential work, uh, extremely hard. You know, that they have, um, they're bearing the brunt of COVID-19. Uh, and so we sort of thought about, you know, what could be sort of the mutually beneficial, beneficial um, aspects of maintaining immigration. You know, I think we all know that uh, the Trump administration has put in a number of increased barriers to both legal and um, unauthorized immigration. Uh, and so as we thought a little bit about highlighting the role of immigrants right now, while the pandemic is still in full bloom as essential workers, and then also thinking a little bit about how when we begin to reopen and recover that the uh, immigrant workforce in these essential industries, you know, things like food service, things like uh, construction, um, you know, here in uh, the neighboring county, Prince George, uh, Prince William County uh, in Virginia, uh, we've looked a little closely at it and about 40% of the people in the construction field are foreign born and about half of those are naturalized citizens, but half are not. Uh, and so who's going to in an, a, a location where there's considerable growth, um, who's gonna fill those construction jobs? You know, so we see there is this uh, argument for the labor force advantage and how it's benefiting, you know, and Boss and Jason, you know, you do a good job outlining outlining, you know, the mutually beneficial contributions of immigrants and the argument for that, you know, on a very philosophical and theoretical uh, level. 
And we're sort of working more on empirical level to sort of show the role that foreign-born workers are playing in the U.S. economy as they have in the past, are doing right now during the pandemic, and will do so in the future. And another example we, we sort of talk a little bit about in the essay is um, vaccination. You know, that here again is a positive sum solution that we all need to get vaccinated if the vaccine is going to be effective. And if you've got a segment of American society, um, you, know, in, you know, the foreign born population is now up to uh, close to 14%. About half of those are not naturalized. Um, you know, the estimate is about 3% of the U.S. population is unauthorized. If those folks are not inclined to get vaccinated, and this would just not only be the unauthorized themselves, but if they're in mixed status uh, households, what's that going to be? What's that going to do to the effectiveness of a vaccine? A vaccine? And so thinking about sort of getting the message across to people that it is, you know, that this is a positive sum solution that could benefit um, not just the, the people, the immigrants who might not get vaccinated, but also the entire community that they're living in. And you go to a place like um, Las Vegas is one of the, um, one of the uh, metropolitan areas with the highest rate of unauthorized uh, immigrants. And, you know, though we talk about the pandemic as a global national uh, crisis, it happens in local places, you know, these hotspots that we keep reading about and hearing about. And so you could imagine, even if there were a vaccine that was effective, um, that in these hotspots, you would still have uh, hotspots that had a large number of foreign born who were hesitant to come out and seek a vaccine, that the effectiveness of a vaccine is going to be diminished. You know, so we sort of focus in one part of the essay on, you know, and this came directly from reading the uh, saved me a lot of hard work and trying to justify uh, solidarity solutions, uh, you know, by thinking as Jason and Boss make the case for positive sum solutions, you know, which among economists and uh, philosophers is a widely employed uh, concept, you know, in, um, in reaction to zero sum solutions. Among sociologists, uh, the term is not used at all. Um, and I think that's, again, one of the reasons I like to uh, do this kind of multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary work, is I think some innovation happens in being exposed to uh, new ideas. But, you know, the, um, the positive sum solution approach, we then also thought a little bit more about uh, the way immigration policy has been uh, developing even before the pandemic. And because there's been an absence of leadership at the federal level, a lot of immigration policy has been um, sort of devolved down to the state and local level. And similarly, the response to COVID-19, you know, there's an absence of leadership uh, at the uh, federal level. And so different uh, municipalities and states are adopting their own policies. And we sort of expect that, you know, as we come out of the pandemic, um, that this tendency for more decentralized solutions will probably continue and may even grow. And it really has the advantage, you know, there's talk 
There's some talk of state-based uh, visas, of ways to um, allow states that want to increase their immigrants somehow to do that, you know, to incre increase the immigrant population. And we certainly see some places that are trying through um, either stricter enforcement of federal policy or the adoption of local policy uh, to discourage uh, immigrants from living in their communities. Uh, and so we sort of look at these two things, you know, the positive sum solutions and the decentralized solutions and feel there really is a synergy there because the willingness to mutually benefit one another is probably more likely to happen when we know each other, you know, that at least we're from a common background and that would make us more willing in this decentralized setting to really open up to the idea of we can do something that not only benefits me, but benefits the people around me and they get benefits that benefit me. Um, and so, you know, we thought this was a fairly, um, those were our two guiding principles and we saw how they came together. Um, but now I have my problem. And the problem um, is probably best illustrated uh, but by what's going on on university campuses around the country. You know, where um, individuals, you know, the whole problem you know, that we know, physical distancing and mask wearing can be mutually beneficial. Right? That's, the science is there. And at a university or college, it's a decentralized spot. You know, people know one another, but they're not acting in a way that you would expect if decentralization and positive sum solutions um, would work together as a guide that would benefit people, um, all of the people in a local community, whether it's a university, a town, or a state. Uh, and so that's where, you know, if Boss or Jason has some ideas on how I get out of this conundrum or other, others on the panel, um, I would appreciate their insights. And again, you know, I would really re recommend the book for people who are not economists and philosophers uh, because it sort of sets you off thinking in new ways. Thanks. Cool. Uh, so thanks very much for all those comments, everyone. This is really helpful and interesting, and I, I learned a lot from it. I actually did a debate with Kit a while back and got this t-shirt uh, on from that time. So um, we now have like a road show apparently. Uh, so uh, I have a couple comments. I think Kit will say a couple, or uh, not Kit, uh, Boss will say a couple things and then we can sort of move on. But I think I'll start with, uh, with Stills' comments. Um, she framed the book very differently from how we see it. And that doesn't mean she's wrong, but it, it does mean that we're looking at this in a very different perspective. Um, because from our framing, our framing is we, Boss and I, are accusing the global order of mass oppression. We are saying there is mass oppression and mass exploitation and the effective law of peoples that exists in the world and the just cutting the world up into modern nation states is to be blamed for that mass oppression. Right. So we offer this example in the book where we say, imagine only rich people buy strawberries, imagine only poor people sell them, and imagine the rule says that rich people can go wherever they want to buy the strawberries, but if you're poor and you want to sell strawberries, you have to stay put, and uh, 
take, if you're selling Starbucks, you have to stay put and take any deal that comes from you. You can't move in search of a better deal. That is a system which contributes to oppression, which makes the poor worse off and which enriches the enriched at the expense of the poor. It is the thing that enables exploitation. And that is what the modern states are doing through their immigration policy. It's exactly analogous, except the stakes are really much, much higher. So why are people exploited? Uh, fundamentally because people believe in something like Rawls's philosophy and act on it. It's a perverse thing, but it seems to be true. And we note too that from the kind of perspective that even I think Stills is bringing up like about uh, the Rawlsian kind of view of the world, within a given nation state, the typical kind of left liberal thinks that freedom of movement is a right. Yeah, it can be restricted under some circumstances. Yeah, there can be some regulations, but you have the freedom to move where you want and live where you want within that nation state. You have the freedom to take a job from anyone who will offer to you, maybe with some regulation, maybe with some licensing. We're not saying everyone can be a medical doctor, but generally speaking, there's a presumptive right that you can take any job that's offered to you. You can live wherever you want and you can make any interaction, like you can make trades within a country as you want. And Rawls thinks these are rights and he has reasons for it. But suddenly when we go and talk about between nation states, it's different, right? So we want to say, like, just to be clear, we're not thinking of this as, well, the benefits of this will be low and diffused and they outweigh the concentrated harms to the few. Instead, we think the empirics are pretty clear. A small number of very rich people by world standards will in the short term, maybe, this is actually controversial, be harmed slightly by trade and be harmed slightly by immigration. In the long term, they'll be tremendously benefited. But even in the short term, the very, very poor will see tremendous benefits. Now, if the world order is presumptively just, then, oh, well, you know, people suffer from that. But it doesn't look like to us like it's presumptively just. It looks like rather it's an instrument of oppression. Um, and responding to, to Kit very quickly, uh, he sometimes talks about the kind of metaphor of the ownership of the institutions. And we, he and I have talked about this, and it's a perplexing question about how to think about this. But it's worth noting that ownership of the idea of institutions is complicated. When we think of what institutions are, we mean the rules of the game that structure social life, that enable us to live together, the norms that structure our interaction. That's what institutions are in this economic sense that we're using. And they're not really, they're, they're lived out by people, but they don't own them in the way that like I own a cup or I own a phone or I own a t-shirt. But if it were a kind of ownership, then this leads to a perplexing view about, well, think about the things that people are allowed to do when they own something. Like I own the house that I'm living in right now. And I might have a rule that says no Christians can come in this house because I just don't like Christians. And no one can play Taylor Swift in this house because I don't like Taylor Swift. And, uh, you know, I could even do mean things like I, don't, I won't let black people in my house because I don't want to. Now, these are things that are within my ownership rights. I don't act on any of those. And I don't believe those things, but I could if I own them. And so... A perplexing thing is if you have the view that that a people inside of a country own their institutions, the norms that they live under, why don't they get these weird rights that come with ownership? And then the argument that you might give about why they're not allowed to do some things like forbid Christianity or discriminate against, uh, say, certain minorities or forbid people from listening to certain kinds of music, those explanations might also apply to the things we're talking about. Well, one final comment, and I'll throw back over to Boss um, with regard to wit. Um, he has some good questions about infection and disease. And, you know, we do think it can be fine to restrict people if you know they have a disease and to restrict maybe like even sometimes put a temporary barrier around a certain area. If there's an Ebola outbreak in some place, maybe you say no one can leave that place. You have to literally quarantine them for a while. But it's worth noting, and I'm getting this point basically from Brian Kaplan, who wrote a nice blog post about this recently, uh, 
we live in a world in which immigration is very heavily restricted. If you think about complete open borders and complete restrictions, we're much, much closer to that complete restriction side. It's very difficult for most people to move to another country. I can't even move to Canada at will, and I have a PhD and so on, right? And, I'm, and I speak English and all the other things Canadians like. So even despite that, like historically speaking, even small movements of people, like back in the day when there was less globalization and less trade and less interaction between peoples led to the spread of smallpox and the spread of the black, of the black plague and the spread of all these other horrible things. It's extremely difficult to stop the spread of disease. We don't really know how to do it. So as Kaplan would say, like, uh, you know, it's not going to be enough to just completely close off the borders. In the end of the day, if you really want to stop disease, you're going to have to stop trade and tourism. You're going to have to stop people from flying over from visit. You're going to have to become relatively autarchical. And even that, historically speaking, it's not clear that it works. So this is a deep and perplexing problem, but it's worth noting the things that we've seen in the mass diseases we've seen have come from very little trade and very little interaction. Uh, so one, some might say, aha, well, that just shows that we shouldn't have any more because it's so dangerous. But that's where we have to emphasize a conservative estimate is that opening borders would lead to $60 trillion more in gains, mostly to the, for, to the world's poor, though to the rest of us too, in the short term. And you get that same gain year after year after year and compounding growth on top of it. So this is where cost-benefit analysis has to come into some degree. If you're talking about a massive gain from allowing people to be free and allowing them to have the rights that Rawls thinks they have, but just allowing it between countries too, then you have to have really bad stuff on the other side before that starts looking like a knockdown argument against open borders. Um, so Basil, why don't you finish up too? Yeah, thank, yeah, I also want to say thanks to everyone, well, first for being here and for, for the thoughtful comments. I got a couple of things that I'll say quickly, mostly about what Kit was had to say. That's not because, not because they were, I didn't find what Annie said was interesting, but um, I have quicker things I can say about this. Um, so, um, well, first of all, to follow up on the, on the point about Pefnik's argument that Jason made. So I think we should distinguish between like the owning of the institutions and the rights, including the rights of exclusion that come with supposed ownership of institutions on the one hand, and then the ownership of the wealth that's produced by life under those institutions on the other hand. And as far as I can see, the argument is not so plausible about the first, about the owning of the institutions for reasons that Jay raises. Um, maybe it's defensible to say that Norwegians say have a right to the wealth that's produced under Norwegian rules. But it's quite different to say that they have a right to exclude other foreigners from the wealth in Norway and to say they have a right to exclude people from Norway. So most people who immigrate, they, they um, they're not looking for a handout. They're looking for just being there and working and finding a job with willing, working for willing others and selling things to willing others and so on. So at most, I see that type of argument going for this kind of two-tiered society that you discussed, which is sort of like, well, then the Norwegians get to keep all their, uh, all their welfare state gains and then the foreigners can come in. They just don't get, the, they don't get any of the money and the, and the goodies that come with that. Now you ask, are, am I, are we comfortable with that? No, I'm not comfortable with that at all. I tend to like what Walzer says, this point that you don't, you don't want a sort of feudal society reintroduced after we finally made the progress to having a society of one tier, not two tiers of people. But our position is this, like, well, most of those, those welfare benefits, if you ask, if you press on, a, on, a, on it, um, that people are talking about, they're probably unjust um, anyway. So our view would be if they cannot be shared equally, then, you share, then 
you turn them down to a point where it is sustainable. And if you're not willing to do that, well, then we're going to have to deal with this, this second class um, citizen problem. Now, that's not our problem. That's the problem of the people who insist on maintaining those unjust cases. So, that, I mean, that's a further, uh, a further bitter pill for them to swallow, but that's just the price of injustice, I guess. And it does get ugly at some point. So in our view, what you want to make, you want to get a society in which people can immigrate and not be second class citizens. That's the view we defend. And it's just as a second best case, it's much better to have a two tier society and than to just have a two tier world because the two tier world is much worse than the two tier society. That's, the, that's basically the idea. Um, about the human right to property, you asked. Um, so I'm glad that you like this argument. Um, <laughs> I like it too. You said it's not, it seems uncontroversial. The right to private property is uncontroversial. That I think is not true. It is very controversial. Um, anecdotally, it's controversial. We tried to, tried to get that chapter published as a journal article for about two and a half years and uh, getting slapped around by referees. So you might like it, but most people don't. Um, and mostly for annoying reasons, to be honest. Um, in the literature, it's not uncontroversial either. Like when philosophers write about this stuff in the human rights li literature, they pretty much speak with one voice, which is this stuff is really problematic. And if it means anything, it means very little. Um, if you look at the human rights documents, the right to private property is affirmed, but only sort of very reluctantly so. It's usually formulated in a way to give maximal uh, freedom to sort of state prerogative to curtail, tax, regulate, take away. Even. Um, so I think this stuff actually needs to be said. <laughs> it needs to be said over and over again because the, the actual field and the theory and the practice does not treat this as, uh, as particularly straightforward, as, but it should be. Now you ask, so like, what is the view? Well, so like if, uh, if a person tries to trade with another, refuses to trade with another person, is that a violation of the human rights? Well, well, no, that's by the definition of the right. It's not, you don't get to coerce others to trade with you, but you get to trade. Nobody gets to coercively prevent you from trading. That's the point. Is it a human rights violation if Norway refuses to trade with Sweden, let's say? Well, it depends what you mean, right? Does it mean that people um, just choose not to trade? Then no. But if it is a Norwegian state coercively prohibiting Norwegian people to trade with Swedish people, then yeah, we probably are in the, in the realm of human rights violations. Taxation, is that a violation? Well, not necessarily for the same reasons that Jason brought up earlier. Um, generally human rights, uh, like take for example, the, as an analogy, human rights to free association or free religion. Nobody believes that any type of regulation or any type of, uh, of legal, um, legal rules about these, legal curtailment even of them to, in some cases, is a human rights violation. Free speech, for example, free speech laws are very different between different countries. There's no human rights problem. But if you keep rolling back the right to free speech legally, you keep curtailing it in such a way, for example, in a way that is arbitrary or capricious, or in a way that is so restrictive to not really leave any significant right of free speech left, well then, curtail, then regulation shades into violation. And I would say the same thing about the right to the human rights to property and exchange and so on. There was room for uh, reasonable regulation. And at some point, if you keep either arbitrarily or capriciously applying these or rolling them back so far as to not really have any robust right left, then we're in the realm of, uh, of violation. Does that mean Norway is illegitimate? Well, maybe. And I suppose it depends on other things in human rights theory as well. That I just apply whatever is true of human rights in general, I think ought to apply here. 
So the, the final thing I want to say is like, one of the points that Kit raised was, is one that worries me, which is this sort of stability concern. So what if we open borders, all these people come in from all over the world, and we have these institutions that work here and like work in Norway, that actually got us to be pr prosperous. And so wouldn't they just be destroyed and now the whole world is poor rather than the whole world, whole world is rich, something like that. I think that, to be honest, I think is the best argument against uh, complete open borders. If that really were the case, I would be very worried about it. I think that's the beginning of a decent argument for um, limiting free movement. If it really were the case that open borders would just destroy all, all positive or all inclusive or productive institutions, that would be a real, a real objection. If we look at the evidence, there's not a lot of evidence or there's actually no evidence that things are that dire. Like we're not, we're not at that margin uh, at all. Um, if we ever reach, ever <laughs> get in the, in, the, in the area, we can talk about it. But right now it looks like immigrants come in and they pretty quickly, it takes about a generation, pretty, more, pretty quickly just adopt the local norms. It's even better, like the, they actually send back, send back the norms to help, like the inclusive, the productive norms back home. There's evidence that Mexican immigrants, for example, when they come here, the people in their home villages, they, like I don't know if it goes via phone calls or something or just visits or something, but those, the villages that send a lot of, a lot of immigrants here, they actually start changing the norms towards us. It's not the other way around. So I don't, I'm not worried about that so much. Um, it doesn't look like that things are that bad. But I think it's in, uh, um, important also to keep in mind that even if it does mean that societies like Norway or the United States are going to get a little worse, even if that were the case, the overall result is still one of massive, massive positive gain. If we have to take 10% back, that still means that lots of that most of the world's poor can make a jump, which is like several orders of magnitude in terms of improvement. Like us, temp, like us 10% back, that's in 1950s USA still beats 90% of the world in terms of, I don't know, that's maybe 80% of the world, but vast numbers of people in the world. The most poor people would, would die to be in 1950s United States. So even if there does come, even if it does mean we have to take a hit, we have to give up some of our ill-gotten gains, the gains that we got from wrongfully excluding immigrants. I think that's just what the, what the right thing, what, that's what's the right thing to do. And we'll have to, we'll have to take, that, take that hit if it comes to it. And so the alternatives, I think, just don't, they don't even have anything near the same type of promise. Like you said, that the, one you, the position you're attracted to is the, is the idea to try to replicate good institutions elsewhere. I just don't think history just has a, has a really, really grim, uh, grim record on this. Um, you know, I've written someone intervention and I've looked at the history of this stuff. We just have no cases of places where like, the United States goes abroad and tries to bring about like, positive democratic free institution and actually succeeding. Really the only two cases that exist are Germany and Japan after the second world war. And those are, um, let's say called unusual cases. All right. Well, we are at the end of our time. I want to thank everyone for contributing to this. This is the first time we've ever done one of these uh, webinars. Uh, and um, uh, I, I've been going and to the webinars at Princeton that they've been running on the COVID stuff throughout the whole thing. They have it down to a science. Uh, so we're still in the process of learning it. But thank you very much for all of you for taking your time out and doing this. And thanks to uh, Jason and Boss for giving us something so much uh, food for thought to, to wrestle with. So thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.